If you would, remain standing, take out your Bibles for the reading of God's Word, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is God's Word. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Before we look at God's word together, let's go to him in prayer once again. <clears throat> Father God, we pray by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, you give us ears to hear. Break us of pride. Break us of pride. Renew our minds in Christ, in Christ crucified. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. If you have ever met a child, mature, beyond their years, you're probably generally impressed and likely encourage them for it. But when you meet an adult who's acting like a child, it is a pitiful sight. What's worse is a Christian who refuses to grow up, stunted in their growth. Now, the reason may be because they remain divisive, contentious, constantly complaining, or just infantile, unable to digest the solid food of God's word. All of it, nonetheless, is nothing less than a pathetic reality. Now, how we avoid, how we avoid and or escape from such a pitiful condition um, is our aim this morning. That's what we're after. But if you're visiting with us or you haven't been here for a number of weeks, we are working our way through Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, verse by verse, that is expositionally, which means as you study the Bible, any given book of the Bible, context is king. So we're going to be revisiting some verses we've covered the last couple of weeks in order, in, in order to enter into chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 is actually not the best chapter break. Remember, chapter breaks 
and verses don't come by way of divine inspiration. Those are placed there by man um, in order to help us better move our way um, around the Bible. But I think the chapter break should come in verse 7. Um, so I'm going to cover some ground that we've already visited. And as I said, we'll enter in contextually um, into these verses, chapter 3. Amen? All right. The Apostle Paul is addressing Christians in Corinth, unable to speak to them as adults, but having to condescend and speak to them as infants because their growth has been hindered by them. This is self-hindered spiritual growth at the church in Corinth. The cause? Pride. Pride. Christians in Corinth who are characterized not by Christ, but by thinking that is a mindset that was rooted in prideful values, prideful beliefs. Now, in the first two chapters of this incredible epistle, Paul has diagnosed the first of a series of problems plaguing the church in Corinth, beginning with schisma, schisms. That is the formation of various factions within that body at Corinth. Um, these factions, um, they arose, and we, we read how they arose back in chapter 1. And remember, beloved, chapter 3 is part of one sustained argument that begins in chapter 1, verse 10, and continues through chapter 4 and verse 21. So go back, look at chapter 1, verse 11. I, writes Paul, have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. We're not sure who, who Chloe's people are, but they came from Corinth and into Ephesus. That's where Paul is when he writes this epistle. And they give a report to him about how messed up the church is in Corinth, that there are divisions within. In response, he writes this letter along with answering some questions that um, they had for him, which he doesn't get to till chapter 7. Now, there were two factors, beloved, behind the division. The first was a misunderstanding of the message that the church is called to preach. The second was a misunderstanding of the ministry of those who are called to preach. That is, faulty, culture-driven expectations of the people within the church at Corinth. Now, the attraction, remember, the attraction for Corinth was the wisdom of words. The wisdom of words. That is the use of human wisdom dictated by man, his reason, his philosophy, instead of the wisdom and the power of God, which is preaching Christ and him crucified. 
And when we talk about wisdom of words, or you see in chapter 2, verse 4, um, plausible words of wisdom that were being promoted um, in Corinth, what we're talking about, beloved, is the philosophies of that day within that culture. There were those who believed that the way you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and reach the lost was to frame the message, the message of Christ to him crucified, in terms that were agreeable to human reason and the spirit of the age. That is the characteristic mood and spirit of the day. Today we call that zeitgeist. Worldliness, in other words. And worldliness, beloved, in the Bible, worldliness is simply a term that means buying into and adopting whatever the world's philosophies and attitudes are. That's what worldliness is. Okay, it's not playing cards or listening to rock and roll. Witness on the rock and roll part? <laughs> See, the, the, the Corinthians were attempting to frame the gospel of Jesus Christ with the attitudes and platitudes of that day. That is the wisdom of man and not of God. And Paul gives an emphatic denial of that approach. What do we see in our day? Anything different? Anything changed? No. The same thing is being perpetuated today in biblically illiterate pulpits and biblically illiterate evangelistic outreaches, it may not be Greek philosophy that frames the message, as it did in Corinth, but today we have the framework of materialism. You know, the, the, the false teaching that, you know, Christ will solve all of your financial problems. Just speak to your checkbook. Checkbook, be filled. The power of words. Utter nonsense. There's the framework of entertainment, fog machines, multicolored lights, and some comic standing behind the pulpit. That's the framework of our day that wraps the core gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, there's the framework of politically correct sound bites. You go to some churches today, and all you hear um, is what you could hear if you sit down in front of your television and listen to the evening commentary on cable news. Not Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me, no one comes to the Father except through me, says he. Everything and anything but that in our day. Why? Because that message then and that message now is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. We read that in chapter 1, verse 18. Now, how someone is brought from seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ as utter foolishness to believing and embracing Jesus Christ by faith um, is explained for us in chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. And that is how an infinite God, the infinite God, condescends to reach finite man. And as we learned last time, it comes by way of divine revelation. 
Okay, that is the very mind and wisdom of God conveyed to fallen sinners by way of divine inspiration. That is through the writers of Holy Scripture, which means divine inspiration no longer exists within the church today. Amen? Amen? Okay, when I, when, when I talk about inspiration, I'm not talking about someone saying, wow, that message really inspired me, or that song truly inspired my soul. That's not what we're talking about. We talk about divine inspiration, we're talking about the God-breathed words of Scripture that came down from heaven by way of the Spirit through the prophets' Old Testament in the apostles' New Testament. Divine inspiration. So, someone comes from seeing the gospel as foolishness to the very life-giving words of God through Christ by way of divine revelation that comes to us through divine illumination, the Holy Word, but if you read the scriptures, all they are is just words on a page unless the Holy Spirit moves by way of divine what? Illumination. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Never will anyone grasp the words of the Bible without the work of the Holy Spirit and divine illumination to the soul of the sinner. It's a grace gift that enables us to read it and see it for what it is, to recognize it, to receive it, to, to give assent to it and embrace it, which is to embrace Christ by faith. That's truth. As Francis Schaeffer put it, true truth, divine truth that the natural man we read, chapter 2, verse 14, the unregenerate, does not accept. Look at it, verse 14. But a natural man, okay, let me give you a Greek word here, sukikos. Natural, sukikos, file that in your mind. File that in your mind, sukikos, okay? But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They, that is, the things of the Spirit of God, must be spiritually appraised, and if you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't rightly appraise them. They cannot understand. They cannot rightly evaluate the words of the living God in Holy Scripture. Now, they may have a level of respect for the Bible. They may try to, to live out some of the moral, moral principles of the Bible, but they do not comprehend it. They cannot make a true judgment of Scripture. The natural man can't understand because the natural man is what? Dead. What can a dead man do? This truth must be illumined to his soul. But, verse 15, those who are spiritual, those who have the spirit of God, in other words, he, she, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Okay, that means by way of divine illumination, he is enabled to rightly evaluate the things of God, and he is appraised by no man. Which means, unbelievers do not understand the Bible. And because they do not understand the Bible, they, they don't understand you, God's people. They don't understand us. We are a puzzle to the unbeliever for believing the word of God. Notice the end of verse 16. 
we have the mind of Christ. Okay, remember, we're going somewhere. He's writing to the Corinthians. We have the mind of Christ, who's the very word of God incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. We have the mind of Christ. Okay, now, the Apostle Paul, speaking to a people who do indeed have the Spirit of God, they are spiritual, they are saved, they are Christians, in chapter 3, he tells them why they are where they are, why there are schisms among you, why there is division amongst you. You're acting like babies. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for their immaturity, and he is lovingly laying the wood to their backside. Lovingly. Those who the Father loves, he chastens. And he chastens them through his inspired writer, Paul. Verse 1, chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So here, he's focusing on their problem, which is, they are thinking and living like people who do not have the spirit in this area. You have the spirit, but you all act like you don't have the spirit. So I had to speak to you as men of flesh. I had to speak to you as fleshly. The word is sarkonos. Fleshly. Sarkonos. The idea being that which is composed of the flesh. Okay, now, in verses 3 and 4, he uses a different word, sarkikos. Not sarkonos, but sarkikos, that which is characterized by the flesh. Are you with me? He does this intentionally. So you have sarkonos, that which is made up the flesh, made up of the flesh, sarkikos, characterized by the flesh. He does not refer to them as sukikos. Natural. He can't because they've received the Spirit of God. <clears throat> the natural man, Sukikos, cannot receive the things of God. Paul can't say that about the Corinthians because they have. The Holy Spirit does indwell them, even though they aren't thinking or acting as though He indwells them. Paul says, by the way, Paul says this, remember, to a people who thought themselves to be so holy and spiritual that they hovered six inches above the ground. That's how they viewed themselves. Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual, but merely fleshly. And then he qualifies that notice with infants in Christ. Did you notice that? Infants in Christ. He refers to them as those who are in Christ. Their fleshliness is indicative of their immaturity, and that is they're acting like a bunch of little babies. But they're not Sukikos. 
Let me pause for a moment before we move on. It's important that I define what this text, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is not teaching. It is not teaching what has been taught for the last several decades, especially in America, that this passage has been so twisted, terribly abused, these verses have become the basis for the false teaching known as the doctrine of the carnal Christian. Claiming that there are three categories of people in the world. Unbelievers, and then two categories of believers. Those who are spiritual, and those who are carnal. Carnal, they teach. Carnal Christians, they teach, is someone who's assured of heaven. They're going to heaven, but they're living a life that is indistinguishable from the world. Yet, in the end, they will be saved as though through fire, a misinterpretation of verse 15, which we'll look at next week. They will suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved. Friends, that is a profoundly wrong and dangerous way to read this text. Perhaps you've heard someone say something like this. I received Jesus as my Savior when I was 12. But I didn't serve him as Lord until I was 40. You ever heard that? Of course you have. Or maybe you've known people who believe they're going to heaven because they responded to an altar call 20 years ago, repeated some prayer at youth camp, even though their present life shows no evidence of any concern whatsoever for following Christ. Both examples reflect what is often referred to as carnal Christianity. Teaching teaching that one is saved by confessing Christ, even if there's no evidence that they're possessed by Christ. Are we good? Good. Now, Paul will, of course, address the fact that if a professing Christian's drift away from the gospel becomes serious enough, there's a greater manner, a greater problem that is evident. And that is, they're not a Christian at all. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is what? In you, unless indeed you fail the test. Now, if someone repudiates Christianity like Joshua Harris. That's all I read about for the last two weeks in the news. Joshua Harris um, renounces the name of Jesus Christ. Here's a guy who was a pastor. Here's a guy who wrote a few books, very popular books. I kissed dating goodbye and all of this. Wondering if he's going to return the royalties for those books. He renounces faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Scripture tells us in 1 John 2.19, if someone continues to repudiate Christianity, they went out from us because they were never what? They were never of us in the first place. They were pretend believers. Now, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 13, right? Parable of the four soils. The, the, the seed that is thrown out on stony ground, notice Jesus says, is the man who hears the word, 
and immediately receives it with what? Enjoy, and he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So here's pressure of the culture, persecution. Joshua Harris now is apologizing for preaching God's word. He's apologizing to unbelievers for preaching the word of God. Look. What Jesus says in Matthew 7 is this. Unless you sing the song and dance the dance of pop culture and that which pop culture demands, whether it be in his day or our day, you will be viewed as an utter fool. And in our day, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be referred to as a bigot because God's ways are so narrow. In the mind of a fallen man or woman, they think it can't be that narrow. Jesus said it is. It is that narrow. So under this pressure, people like Joshua Harris, uh, they make a U-turn onto the broad road. Because the broad road pleases man, not God. And how many go that way, said Jesus? Many go that way. The gate's wide there. But its end is, its end is destruction. That is the song and dance of the majority who are sukikos. To you Corinthians, you, you're not sukikos, you're sarkonos. You're being characterized by the flesh. You're acting like babies. You're acting like mere men. Are we good? No such thing. Look, all that to say, let, let me make it clear. Paul is not here in 1 Corinthians 3 creating classes and categories of Christians. There's two categories, saved, not saved, spiritual, dead. Simply put, there's no such thing as carnal Christian. Can we move on now? So if you believe in that carnal Christianity nonsense, you need to eject it. Paul says, you should be grown up. You have the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 16. You have the Holy Spirit. Look, I wanted to talk to you like big boys and girls, but you're drooling all over yourselves. You're looking for a pacifier, and you think you're grown up. But you're sarkonos, you're fleshly babies. You know, our nursery is a cute place, isn't it? You ever look in there? What do you see? Cute little babies sucking on a bottle, cooing and cawing. Why is it cute? Why is it cute? Because they're babies. That's why it's cute. Unfortunately, most churches today are nurseries for adults. D.A. Carson comments on this. He said this, quote, They are infants even in the way they complain. Not for them, solid knowledge of Scripture. Not for them, mature theological reflection. Not for them, growing and perceptive, in perceptive Christian thought. They want nothing more than another round of choruses and a simple message. Something that won't challenge them to think or examine their lives to make choices and grow in their knowledge and adoration of the living God. End of quote. 
If a Christian is in a church that teaches biblical exposition, faithful to the text, and provides opportunity for study and fellowship, if they don't grow, whose fault is it? It's their fault. It's their fault. Okay, here's Paul moving on. He now moves on to talk about their present eating inabilities. Their present eating inabilities, verse 2. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. I had to give you milk. Why? Because that's what babies drink. Friends, let me say this. Paul is not saying here, okay? Now listen, he's not saying, look, I was forced to teach you that God loves you and has a great plan for your life because what I really wanted to do was to teach you the eternal decrees of God or what I really wanted to do was to unfold the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ or teach you about, you know, infralapsarianism. But you weren't mature enough, so you know, I had to preach Christ and his cross. That is not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. The fact of the matter is, the gospel is both milk and meat. Amen? The gospel is both milk and meat. And again, as I said a number of weeks ago, the cross of Jesus Christ is the eye of the needle through which all the promises and glorious doctrines of God come to us. Without which, you don't know God. It's all rooted in the cross. And let me tell you this. For anyone to outgrow the gospel of Jesus Christ, to outgrow the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified, you've totally gone astray. Which is to say, solid food is not for smart people. Solid food is for humble people. Again, solid food is not for smart people. It is for humble people. It was not a lack of smarts that kept the Corinthians in the nursery. It was their pride. Pride. Growth inhibiting pride. So to the Corinthians... Here, who Paul calls believers, he now provides a diagnosis in verses 3 and 4. Acting as though the spirit does not live in you, you're still fleshly. Why are you still fleshly? Verse 3, strife and jealousy. Verse 3, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Verse 4, for when one, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Go back to chapter 1. Verse 11, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brother, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, 
I mean this, that one of you is saying, I am of Paul. The other, I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And then the super proud people like, I don't need a preacher. I'm of Christ. Now, let's focus on Apollos for a moment. Go back to Acts. Remember our study in Acts? Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, ooh, well-educated, an eloquent man, ah, a rhetorician. He came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures, praise God. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In other words, Apollos was guilty of false teaching, though he was not a false teacher. He was just ignorant. So this husband and wife team, who, who know much more than Apollos, at least at that time, pull him aside and humbly inform him of the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, that's where Corinth is, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This brother's powerful by the Spirit's power. And he helped many. So when Paul left Corinth, Apollos enters in and he helps many people. Passionate, powerful preacher. Okay, but what was really going on there? Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. You see this? Factionalism. So Paul connects jealousy and strife to pride. He says, you're all puffed up. We see the same thing in chapter 3, verse 21. Look at it. Let no one boast in men. You want to boast? Boast in this, that you know the Lord. Back to verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Notice, the emphasis, beloved, is not on Paul. It is not on Apollos, but notice, it is on I. I follow. Look at me. You know, I'm an intellectual like Paul. I'm powerful like Apollos. Look at me. Factionalism. This is the the party spirit at work. Division. So the Corinthians, you see, they were attaching their self-worth and their self-promotion to these men. That's a big no-no in the church of Jesus Christ. 
happens to this day. I don't listen to anyone online except fill in the blank. So-and-so's my hero. You know, we tend to look at leaders, do we not? Instead of the Lord for our growth. So we'll look at preachers and we either lionize them or we demonize them. We lionize some thinking they're the only ones who preach solid truth. Or we demonize them because we believe they're the problem in our lives. The result? Division. Factionalism arises. Strife and jealousy boil to the surface. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Who was causing the growth? Apollos? Paul? God. The word servant here, by the way, is the same word from which we get our word deacon. Diakonos. Deacon. Servant. Pointing out, Paul is pointing out how ridiculous the tendency is to make much of preachers. Why? Because they're servants of God. What's the preacher's job? To study. To be in the kitchen, preparing a meal for y'all. It's his meal. He's already prepared it. The preacher's job is not to drop it and mess it up on the way to the banquet hall. Amen? Nourishment comes from him, not the man. And you're making much of the man. So they were experiencing, you see, the Corinthians were, this, this emotional rush of identification with the big name. Big name, big preacher. So they were artificially puffed up attaching themselves to where there is no nourishment. Men. There's no nourishment in the man. They, they, they were attaching themselves to the preacher when they ought to have been um, attaching themselves to the words of the preacher who were pointing to Christ and him crucified. See, this is what pride does. It gets us looking in the wrong direction. Resting in things and resting in people where there is no nourishment. Pride blocks spiritual nourishment. You're not looking where you ought to be looking. Which is what? At what? At what? Looking at what? Looking at what? The cross of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. The cross of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at verse 11, chapter 3. Same message, right? For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That is the gospel, the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. There's your nourishment. So Paul has told us unequivocally, has he not, beloved, that that message is foolishness to a lost and dying world. Offensive to human pride. 
So don't try to frame the message of the world along with the gospel and, and, and divide yourselves up within the body of Christ. Is Christ divided? No, was his argument. Paul says, this is the only foundation upon which you can grow. And by the way, y'all, you're responsible to grow because you have the spirit of the living God. You have the spirit. Don't ignore the spirit. Ignore the spirit. You quench the spirit. Ignore the spirit. You grieve the spirit. You hinder your growth. This is the argument. You know, I've listened to grown men who call themselves Christians, full of strife, full of contention, very divisive. They rail on the church. They rail on men within the church and come to find out they go from church to church doing the same thing with the same kinds of people. Contentious, divisive. They never grow up. Others who are members of the body of Christ, you have to track them down. You track them down, they come to church for two weeks and they disappear for eight. And you track them down again, they come for two and disappear for eight. They never grow up. You see? My grandsons have been with us for a month. They were with us for a month in June. And I love them being with us. They're at a fun age. Um, every time they visit, we measure their height on the wall. One of them in four months grew an inch. You people who have children understand this. An inch. The other one in, one, in a month and a half, a quarter of an inch. Part of me wants them to stay this age forever. But if they did, something would be desperately wrong. When you plant a seed in the ground, you expect it to what? To grow. It's natural. Plant a seed and it grows. Spiritual growth is supposed to be natural. Because of the supernatural residence of God the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the living God. Paul says clearly we should be growing into mature believers by the fact that we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 2 verse 16. Grounded in the cross of Christ in a way that shapes all of life together as the body of Christ. Important to note. In context of this passage. Those who are spiritual those who are mature are not merely filled with Bible doctrine, knowing a bunch of stuff. Growing, rather, in the fruit of the Spirit. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge are designed to go together. It is possible to grow in knowledge and not in grace. It's dangerous. You got a bunch of people walking around puffed up. Knowledge, no grace. But the Bible commands this of us. Listen to the apostle Peter. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Infants, you mothers who have infants, they will scream and they'll cry until they what? Receive their mother's milk. Daddy can't do anything about that. 
like a newborn babe, long for it. With respect, he goes on to say, with respect to salvation, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews rebukes his readers that they ought to have been what? Teachers by now. They ought to have been. So we can become lazy, we can become sluggish, complacent, settling in and adopting the status quo. That was the problem for the Corinthians. That's the danger for us to this day. Very applicable, is it not? So again, solid food isn't for smart people. It's for humble people. It was their pride that kept them sucking on a bottle, laying on the floor in the nursery of the church. Their pride. Not their smarts. They were smart and they were very gifted. Pride, again, tends to look in the direction where there is no nourishment. Now, to close up, some thoughts, some application. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need humility. You want to grow as a Christian? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? Yeah, we would all raise our hands, of course. If you have the spirit of Christ, you want to grow in Christ. Therefore, you need humility. So the first step in pursuing humility is detecting and attacking pride. Growth hindering pride. Look, if you're here and you're not making spiritual progress in Christ as you think you should be making or know that you should be making, perhaps it is due to the work of pride in your life and you are simply failing to acknowledge it. I have to deal with this in my own life. That, that's enough trouble, right? I'm just passing on the message. Applicable to me, it begins here and it flows out. Pride could be at work in your life and you fail to acknowledge it, therefore you cannot deal with it. So, there's three places to look if that's the case. This is by no way exhaustive, but very common. Three places to look. Great place to start. First is the example of this passage itself. Right here, is there strife? Here's the question. Is there strife and jealousy anywhere in your life right now? Because what we're taught here, beloved is that underneath jealousy and strife is pride, some type of self-seeking, some kind of self-assertion. Step back and ask, am I contentious? Am I divisive? Am I a proud, arrogant Christian? Are most of my relationships broken? Now, granted, some Christians will say, well, yeah, most of my relationships are broken, but it's for the sake of standing for the truth. Did you ever think it's not that, it's just that you're a jerk? You go from church to church, standing for the truth. There's always got to be a fight. There has to be a fight somewhere, somehow. And I'm not talking about these heretics out there, okay? I'm talking about sound churches where there's sinners saved by what? Grace. Always looking for a fight. Their relationships are broken because they're nothing but trouble. 
Look in the mirror and ask. Identify it. Acknowledge it. If you acknowledge it, confess it to the Lord God Almighty that you've been putting your stock in someone or something else, perhaps yourself. Identify it. Confess it as pride. Repent. Humbly turn to Christ who loves to supply growth to the what? The humble. The humble. Second place. Whenever you're corrected or some observation is made of you, do you immediately seek to justify yourself? Ooh. Oh. This is a killer. This is a killer right here for me. Is there a pattern of self-justification? If so, <clears throat> pride is lurking. Pride is lurking. Identify it. Confess it for what it is. Pride. Repent. Humbly turn to God who loves to supply growth to the humble. This is what Paul is after. This is what the divine inspired word of God is after by way of divine illumination of the Holy Spirit who Paul says lives in you. You have the mind of Christ. Third place to look. Are you blaming someone else, especially for your lack of growth and enthusiasm of spiritual life? If only my husband were a better leader, then I'd be where I'm supposed to be. I'd be further along. If only my wife were more encouraging, I'd be a better leader. Now, those things are important, but is that an excuse? No, it's not. Because you're seeking nourishment in the wrong place. From the wrong one. If only my pastor preached more messages that melt my felt needs. If he would just meet them, meet my felt needs, then I'd be where I'm supposed to be. If, you know, the church offered self-help classes. Wrong. Wrong. So if your manner is blaming, guess what's at the root? What's at the root? Pride. Confess it, identify it, confess it, repent of it, turn to Christ, the one who loves to give nourishing growth to the humble. He's breaking them down to build them up. Paul is. So the Corinthians then, afflicted with a case of arrested development, may we not be. Amen? That's the lesson for the day. May we not be. That's the aim. That's the goal of the text. Here we are. We've arrived. This is the application. So let us continually turn from selfish pride and receive from the Lord the only one who can provide the nourishment we need to grow. Amen? Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what he's worked in. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and, blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even as I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Amen? Amen. If you're not in Christ, only he can forgive your sins. Only he can take away your guilt. Only he can breathe life into your soul and provide peace with God who bore the wrath of God in the place of all who believe. Repent, believe, and you too shall be saved. Father, we do thank you for your word, the illuminating truth of your word to our souls. Thank you for bringing your truth to us according to grace. Enable us to live lives that are above reproach, that no valid accusation could be held against us, but by grace we persevere by faith, receiving our nourishment not from men, but from you, our living God, for we have the mind of Christ. Bless us, and Lord, we thank you for conviction. This is, this, this is a text that cuts, but along with the cutting, heal us, spiritually strengthen us, for the glory of his name we pray. Amen.